to the In Session Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Etzler, joined today by our uh, State House reporter, Samantha Hogan. Samantha, how are you doing today? Uh, good. We're catching up with each other a little bit earlier in the day than we usually would. Yeah, we are. We are. And uh, because it's early, we've, we've had a few technical difficulties. I want to jump right into it, though. Um, these technical difficulties have made me want to drink. Uh, alcohol is a big thing down in Annapolis, and it's... Uh, started the started the week and it's going to end the week it looks like is that right that's right so on monday um we actually heard from um every single county um that wants to put any kind of exception into the state law um for how its uh, jurisdiction gets to handle um alcohol whether it be serving it whether it be hours of operation whether it be how much beer someone can brew and whether or not even you can mix um something in with uh spirits whether you can go to a distillery and have a gin and tonic or if you can only have the gin so um we got to hear many interesting exceptions uh that people are proposing on monday in the house um the senate is going to pick up those same bills later this afternoon which is why we are speaking now um in the morning and um there are also a handful of statewide bills that are also going to uh, be discussed later today and one of those is the brewery modernization act and it's similar to a local bill that you've probably read um that the frederick county delegation has supported and it would double the number of barrels that uh of beer that craft breweries can brew and Annually, which takes it from 22,500 barrels to 45,000 barrels. And this would allow um, also for breweries to open a second location and serve as much beer there at their second location as they can at their first. Currently, if you have two locations, you're still capped um, at a single um, set number of barrels of beer that you can serve um, between the two locations. So it would de-aggregate that number and allow you to serve as much at one location as you can serve at the second. Um, uh, some of the statewide uh, bills um, would also uh, what the statewide bill does not have, sorry, is um, a increase for self distribution, self distribution, which is essentially how much a brewery on its own can sell before it has to enter an agreement with a wholesaler. Now, this is something that we see in the Frederick County bill and something that's still progressing through the General Assembly, but is something that we don't see in the larger Brewery Modernization Act. And so, um, this is a big one for small breweries because of how Maryland's franchise laws are currently written that no matter what size uh, brewery you are, once you enter into a contract with a wholesaler, it's very difficult to leave or to break that contract. Um, it requires something like 160 or 180 days of notice. And when you're a small business, I mean, that's a long time and it's not guaranteed that you can leave that um, even if you provide notice and a good reason and then you got to take it to court and it's a very a long, protracted process. And so it becomes a question of um, whether small breweries should be able to move their own product and have that kind of quality control over its delivery. So um, today on Friday, Delegate Carol Krim from Frederick will be presenting a bill that would change these franchise agreements statewide by creating a tiered system of small and large producers where the cutoff between the two would be those that are brewing more or less than 300,000 barrels of beer a year. Now, no one's anywhere remotely close to that if they're a small craft brewery. Um, but they another stipulation would be whether or not they make up 
um, or less than 10% of a franchisor's um, products. So the 300,000 barrel limit is something that's a little bit easier to understand. We're talking about our Budweiser's, our Anheuser-Busch's. We're talking about, you know, those those common names that you're used to hearing about. You're not talking about Brewer's Alley or Milkhouse Brewery. Um, though both of those have been very supportive and actually came down to Annapolis to support the delegation when it was presenting its bills in the House on Monday. So there is a desire locally to see some of these alcohol law changes, um, something that we probably haven't dived as much into as as beer just because of the volume of breweries that we have here in Frederick County and, and the economic impact that um, brewing limits have. You know, we're also looking at, you know, just different license agreements whether or not you've got to collect enough signatures um, in order to open a, um, a a place that sells alcohol whether you um uh, gosh i'm trying to think uh, uh, how we handle uh the sale of alcohol in movie theaters trying to clean up that licensing process so those are some other small things that have unanimous delegation support that are also moving through that are probably going to get local courtesy which is meaning that the um the the committee will rule favorably on it and that the uh, general assembly will allow to be passed into written as an exception into the law but when we get into these much broader sweeping um beer laws and brewing laws and self-distribution, we're talking about things that potentially have statewide impact and we could see a little bit more pushback on that. So it's been an exciting thing to follow around. I have never gotten to dig into uh, beer laws before. (laughs) Right. And they are a huge part of of our economy here in Frederick County. Um, What are you expecting today? Today is a hearing, correct? Yes. Are are you expecting a big turnout, especially uh, from our our local uh, breweries or has it kind of everybody's already expressed their support it's kind of up in uh, in the hands of the legislators now what are you expecting today so I'm expecting for the Brewery Modernization Act and then for Delegate Carol Crim's um, franchise bill, I'm expecting there to be people. I'm expecting there to be local voices, and I'm also expecting there to be opposition. So the Wholesalers um, Association, as well as um, some licensed beverage associations, they have come out strongly every single time, whether it was a delegation meeting, whether it was a hearing, whether it was just, you know, minor discussions on these, they're really trying to protect the other tiers of Maryland's alcohol industry. So it's not just the manufacturers that we're talking about, but we're also talking about the people that move and sell the beer and then the people that own the stores um, where the beer can be sold in other alcohols as well. So there's a lot of, um, concern about protecting the sections of the industry um, where that that currently exists that are beyond the manufacturers of the product itself um, and protecting their livelihoods, protecting their businesses. But the question is whether the caps that are currently in place are too restrictive on these small businesses and forces them to take very um, long-lasting agreement and make long-lasting agreements um, that could essentially hinder their businesses later on. So this is giving, uh, how it's been described to me, it's giving these businesses a 20-year plan. It's giving them room to grow, room to safely enter these agreements and more confidently enter these agreements. So we're going to see that conversation. I, I, I don't know if Bruce Alley and Milk House is going to come back out and support it or if other ones might show up. Um, but definitely when we're talking about brewer, brewery modernization and franchise laws, I'm expecting there to be some local voices 
spaces to reaffirm to these committees that this is what they want. All right. Um, and, and you wrote a story uh, earlier this week um, with two of our Frederick County de- uh, delegation members, Senator Michael Huff, uh, delegate, uh, new delegate, Dan Cox, who uh, they're tackling um, crime classification and sentencing reform kind of together, uh, kind of co uh authoring different bills for their respective houses. Um, and it's this is kind of an offshoot of something we've seen before. Is that right? Yeah. So if you've been with us for a few years, you definitely remember the Justice Reinvestment Act and everything that came before and after that, which essentially looked at our prison populations and tried to figure out how we could keep violent offenders um, in prison and in jail, but take some of those nonviolent offenders and reduce our prison populations and reduce the cost to the state and counties of housing these individuals by offering ses- uh, second chances and sentencing reform. Now, this is is an offshoot that Senator Michael Huff and Delegate Dan Cox are working on. They have the same bill in separate chambers. And essentially what it's doing is proposing a task force that would look holistically at the state's entire criminal classification, meaning whether something is a misdemeanor, a felony, or a civil offense, and then the sentences that come with each of those crimes. And uh, as Senator uh, Huff liked to describe it, it's a bit of a hodgepodge right now. Um, I've the, heard the bill several, or the classifications? The classification system itself. You know, um, So essentially every single time that a crime has been uh, classified as a felony, a misdemeanor, or a civil offense, it's been up to the General Assembly to decide. They've just been like, I think this is a felony. I think this is a misdemeanor, and this should have one year in jail. This should have 10 years in jail. And so what those decisions have done over the years is created a hodgepodge system because if you look at some of the examples of 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 bills that uh, of laws that they're even trying to change this year you kind of start to see it selling a child or soliciting a person to commit murder these are only misdemeanor offenses and then you look at something like injuring a racehorse and that's a felony and so People that maybe have never interacted with the the justice system might ask, well, why why is it important if it's a misdemeanor or if it's if it's a felony? And it's important because when you have a felony conviction, you have many rights that are taken away from you because we believe that these people have committed a crime of a certain standard that they shouldn't be able to own a firearm. Or in some of the other states, felony convictions means that you can't vote. Um, so if felony convictions, it, it does matter. And and how we prosecute these, does it can severely disrupt some individuals' lives. And then the other thing to consider is, is that if you have a misdemeanor, there's a statute of limitation on when those cases can be prosecuted. So if the if the soliciting a person to commit murder, if the if if that's a misdemeanor and you have three years to prosecute that, but maybe you don't realize that the individual in your family who was murdered had been murdered by a person that had been hired to do that, you may miss your the victim's family may miss the opportunity to to prosecute that individual and so it really has real ramifications if these crimes are miscategorized um and so 
the task force would make a series of recommendations on how uh, certain crimes would be reclassified. And then the state uh, may also want to consider a tiered structure um, to guide how it classifies and sentences uh, crimes later on. Um, these would all be just recommendations. It doesn't require the state to adopt them. And uh, it would have to be acted on legislatively later. Where, where, does, where does this legislation stand at the moment? And what is your... Um, feeling a- about how well it's been received. These are two Republican legislators who are pushing this, are uh, uh, authoring this this legislation. Is it something that has gotten w- uh, bipartisan support? Where, how do you feel uh, about this legislation's chances of passing? Well, you know, the Justice Reinvestment Act did well, you know, when it moved forward. So this bill has been seen before, this specific bill has been seen before by Huff in 2017. Now it's a two-year process to evaluate it. So if it had been enacted in 2017, it would have been presented to lame duck um, legislators in late 2018. So there was a desire not to move forward with it that year just because uh, just because of politics on that. But we have seen the Justice Reinvestment Act be supported by Governor Larry Hogan, who is also a Republican. It obviously got enough votes to pass. I don't think anyone is questioning that we should that we should have a more equitable justice system and how we incarcerate individuals should potentially be looked at through a more modern lens. So I think you pick up Democratic support there. Now, the bills are still in committee, so we'll have to see where uh, this ultimately goes. But, you know, I think that given the precedent that's been set by these previous bills, we could see support. Okay, that's interesting. And I want to move on to another story that you wrote this week that I found uh, really enlightening, actually. Um, Thank you. Because it's a a (laughs) lot of stuff that that I I didn't know that went into kind of the redistricting process. We we talked a lot about redistricting the 6th district, um, which has been widely criticized as a gerrymandered district um, to uh, help uh, the Democratic Party um, win a a district in Congress. And uh, one of the things I found most interesting about this this story that you wrote was that all of the districts have to have an about equal amount of people in them to ensure equal representation, which makes sense, just never thought of it that way. Um, and so tell me a little bit about this meeting, what it's the, the commission's meeting this week, what it means for Frederick County and the kind of problem they are having because each district has to have that equal representation. Yeah, so a lot of you will remember that at the end of the year, the governor uh, uh, issued an executive order and formed the Emergency Commission on Sixth District Gerrymandering, gerrymandering. and they met on Wednesday, which was a snow day, Um, so they met by phone conference, uh, but what the center of attention for that group was on that day was Frederick County, because they've held three public hearings, and they've listened to a lot of people, and they've looked at the historic precedent of the district prior to uh, the 2000, the 2000, no, 2010 census, which um, marks the point when a census is taken by the U.S. government and uh, allows the states to then uh, redistrict because of that population um, requirement that we're talking about. So Every congressional district needs to have roughly in Maryland 721,000 
people. And so how it was redrawn (laughs) really broke a lot of that historic precedent that had been set about the six. So what they heard from people is that they wanted Frederick County to be returned completely to the sixth district. And that is appears to be what the commission is leaning towards. Right now, it's kind of like two puzzle pieces. The sixth district comes over from Western Maryland, and it bubbles up around the city of Frederick, and then the 8th District kind of latches on like two puzzle pieces onto each other um, and holds on top of it for the northern half of Frederick County. And then that snakes down into Montgomery County, and the 6th snakes down into Montgomery County. So we kind of have this uh, Warshaw test, as Senator Michael Huff likes to call it, or as uh, one of the co-chairs of the commission said, it was it was like a car accident victim where you're doing surgery on the shoulder and then you end up amputating the leg off of it uh, <laughs> when you try and fix these these puzzle pieces that are, are very bizarrely and snaking together and it kind of like spaghetti thrown onto it. So, you know, it, gerrymandering. So... <laughs> What happened is that um, they're trying to come up with a way to meet a a federal um, uh, court's decision that the 6th District has to be redrawn ahead of the 2020 election. And so what that uh, what the consensus opinion appears to be is they're going to return all of Frederick County to the 6th District. They're going to pull in a, a bit of Carroll County, which has historically been in it to it. They have to pull down into northern Montgomery County to about Germantown to meet that population requirement. And then that mix that that area that's left is going to become the 8th District. And so the the question they were all really dealing with was well how many of these districts do we want to touch because they are all so close to each other and snake into these different areas in some scenarios you could end up breaking montgomery county up into four congressional districts and arundel county up into five congressional districts sometimes you would need to take the first congressional district which covers the entire eastern shore and literally take it across the bay bridge to pick up area in annapolis in order to make the population requirements and these just sound like crazy solutions so um, they ultimately decided to try and, and limit the impact to as few counties and as few congressional districts as possible um, and then allow a much broader redistricting to happen after the 2020 census, which would then affect elections thereafter. So the only other confounding factor in all of this really is that the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to take up Maryland's case. Uh, Attorney General Brian Frosch has challenged the lower the lower federal court's decision that the map needs to be redrawn ahead of the 2020 election. They're going to be asking different questions than what they asked to the Supreme Court during the previous case. So there's a lot of moving parts in this, but I guess the simplest answer is, is that it looks like at this time, Frederick County could completely be returned to the 6th District. Right. I think the Montgomery County aspect of this is is so fascinating because you say that 721,000 number, is that correct? 
That is. And I, I, if and you read the story, you know, there's a million people in Montgomery County. But what it also really frustrates people in Western Maryland that they have to be tied to Montgomery County because it's seen as a more progressive and liberal area with more urban values than the rural values that you find in Western Maryland. And when you're electing an individual to represent you, you want them to be able to represent your views. So there, you, there's that argument and you hear it time and time again, but you have this underlying population requirement that you have to meet so that you're, you're being represented equitably. Right, exactly. I think the, the Montgomery County thing is going to be so fascinating. There's also, um, I don't know if it's a, a legal deadline, but the the commission seems to be operating under a deadline to get this on Larry Hogan's desk. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we are going to be talking about this next week, definitely, because the commission is going to make a vote on Friday on what map it wants to send. Friday is March 1st. It has to be on the governor's desk by March 4th. So it went from this slow, listen to people, let's think conceptually about it, to like a very immediate deadline. So we are going to have an update, and uh, yeah, then things are really going to pick up. That's something we're, we're definitely going to, to continue to keep an eye on, as is um, the gun law debate uh, going on in Annapolis, which has largely been due to legislation that Senator Michael Huff has uh, put forward. Um, some of it had some bipartisan support, and it looks like there was kind of a hiccup yesterday. Yeah, for sure. So Senator Michael Huff did something smart, which we talked about probably on our first or second uh episode of In Session, which was that he wanted to address concealed handgun um, laws. However, the changes that he wanted to make, some of them were easy and some of them were very difficult. So he broke it up into three separate bills, kind of bite-sized morsels, if you will. And so the first one was supposed to be the easiest one. It's SB 113, and it would um, change how Maryland State Police are able to collect fees when they're going to issue a concealed handgun permit and um, essentially what it's written into statute right now is that they can accept checks and they can accept money orders and this paper system has slowed things down things have been lost people get frustrated it's already a prolonged process because we have strict um, handgun laws in the state and so what he wanted to do was leave it to the discretion of um, the state police to decide what kind of payment methods they wanted to accept and this had bipartisan support um, an individual a delegate from Montgomery County had cross-filed it in uh, the House of Delegates and um, it was expected to pro- it came out of committee with only one unfavorable vote everyone else even though it's democrats and republicans that sit on judiciary which michael huff also does um it came back with a favorable recommendation and then we saw um a debate essentially erupt on the floor and it (laughs) it's ironic that it was about guns but it wasn't about guns it was about whether or not we should be giving the maryland state police or any state agency the ability to completely be in charge of how it collects money. And it comes down to an equity question again and a fair access because the state police wanted ideally to move to an entire electronic system. Now, we heard a uh, senator from Baltimore City um, say that he was worried about his constituents um, being able to have access to computers and to internet and something that a lot of us take for granted, but really not everyone has access to. 
and whether they should just add credit cards into the law as, a, as an acceptable payment method or if they should give this control over. And we saw Senator uh, Ron Young from Frederick County also vote on this for financial reasons. But what was really interesting is it flipped six votes from judiciary the Judiciary Committee who had originally supported Michael Huff's bill and then decided to vote for the amendment instead. So I think we're wading in <laughs> to the gun debate and it was... It was disguised as a as a as a as a agency power um, thing uh, debate, and definitely it was. But at the core of it, there's going to be a lot of tension over gun laws, um, at least in the Senate. And um, I I can get a little bit deeper into why that is. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. I mean, I I think it's kind of a surprise because this was supposed to be the easiest bill of the bunch. It was. And and so it just had this kind of confounding factor of how much do we allow state agencies to control things. But we also know that it is about guns because the Senate Executive Nominations Committee, which Senator Ron Young from Frederick is the chairman of, also on Monday, not unanimously, but they rejected the governor's three nominations for the handgun permit review board, which is the board that someone who has had a handgun permit revoked, limited, or or overturned, they they can appeal to this body in order to see if they can overturn the state police decision. And they the current board does this on about 90% of cases and so there was real concern that the maryland state police were uh, conducting background checks and then this board was overturning it and because the governor was involved in appointments that there could be some partisan influence to this and so (laughs) now there's a bill to completely repeal this board which has been in existence since the 1970s so we are seeing concealed handguns and the laws surrounding them being attacked. On one side, you have Michael, Senator Michael Huff wanting to expand who can carry a concealed handgun. And those are his two other bills. Um, And then you're seeing the Democratic majority of the Senate wanting to not have as many concealed handguns because they want to get rid of this board that has been overturning state police decisions and they want to move it to a neutral body, an administrative hearing body to oversee the appeals process. Um, Senator Ron Young said, quite frankly to me, that Maryland, you know, is not favorable. The Maryland legislature is just not favorable to gun laws. Like, well, not favorable to gun rights. So... You know, there's going to be a lot of layers to peel back, I think, on every single one of these arguments. We're going to see the governor's nominations. We're going to see a board. We're going to see the laws itself. We're going to see the, the the personalities of these lawmakers and these amendments come up if, if some of these more controversial bills come out of committee. So it was an interesting foray into uh, gun laws for sure. So when they when they talk about disbanding the uh, handgun permit review board, what 
you mentioned there's a replacement. There's an administration. I mean, that's very vague. What is their plan to replace? Would this be legislators who, who people can appeal to? Is there no longer an appeals option? Um, there would be an appeals option. It would go to the Office of Administrative Hearings, I believe is what it's called. And so it's an existing body, but it's not, it wouldn't be tied to nominations from the governor anymore. So it, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't, the, the, the views of the board wouldn't swing with the political party of, of elected officials. Interesting. Is the idea. Though I'll note that this board has been existent since 1970, 1972, I believe. So, and all of a sudden, it's it's not it's not new. Enough. Yes, of course. And you know, it's this constant battle between a Democratic majority legislature and a Republican governor winning right. a second term. So, um, like I said, lots of layers to peel back on this one. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I want to move on real quick. Um, we we've talked quite a bit uh, about minimum wage. Um, as we know, there's a bill for the, the fight for $15 uh, an hour. Can you sort of give me an update on, on where things stand with that and, and what it might look like going forward? So the Democratic caucuses in both chambers have come out in support of raising the minimum wage. Uh, the Senate uh, was packed with people testifying for and against the bill yesterday on Thursday. Um, this appears to be particularly important to tipped workers, uh, such as waitresses and bartenders. Tipping will remain in place, um, but it would bring up the base salary of these workers whose paychecks are vulnerable to slow nights and people not choosing not to go out. I spoke to a single mother who has is bartending in Bethesda um, while she gets her master's of social work um, for school she has to compete uh, complete an unpaid internship which limits the jobs that she can take because of the limit days that she can physically be in an office and it got to the point where people just weren't coming out to the restaurant that she was working at and her paycheck fell dramatically and so she was facing eviction she's feeding herself and her 12 year old son with food stamps um just to make ends meet and when i asked her you know would 15 dollars an hour if that had been your base pay would that have fixed things and she said she wasn't sure if it would have fixed it but it would have given her a better cushion than the three dollars and change that she currently makes from tipped work and so the industry has objected though to increasing the minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour saying that they can't afford afford it. The Maryland Farm Bureau has also come out against this bill because it removes an exemption for farm laborers. Um, and there has also been consideration in alternative bills whether this is appropriate for the entire state and whether um, it should be higher or lower depending on the cost of living um, in certain counties. Um, but I would definitely expect us to see a vote on this by the end of session. Has there has there been talk, and I don't know how the current bill is structured. The last time we raised minimum wage, it was through a tiered process. It was through, it went up this much this year, this much the next year, and eventually got to ten dollars and ten cents. Is that would this be a straight jump to fifteen? Would this be a tiered? No, jump no, no, no. Yeah, it would be the same. It would be a phased in increase uh, to fifteen. I, I do want to look ahead uh, going forward. Um, we talked about the 6th District gerrymandering um, commission coming up next week. What else are we looking ahead to next week? 
Yeah, so uh, like I said earlier, we're definitely looking um, at a vote by the Emergency Commission on 6th District Gerrymandering on a map that will then be sent to the governor. Um, also next week, we on Thursday, we have uh, the governor's uh, two proposed um, legislative and congressional redistricting um appointment bills, uh, a structure for setting up a independent board to redistrict um, Maryland in the future, and then also um, putting limits on uh, how the General Assembly could change the proposed plan that came out of that um, board afterwards. Those two bills are going to be heard by the Senate um, on Thursday. I have no idea what their fate is. Uh, I mean, they're giving it a a hearing because it's a courtesy because it was filed on time. Um, But they've had historical precedent of just putting the governor's uh, redistricting bills in the drawer and not addressing them. So we'll have to see what the reaction is to them. They're quite bold and they really would limit what the General Assembly would be able to do in regards to redistricting. So um, we'll definitely have to see where that goes. But... um, We'll also expect to see Delegate Karen Lewis-Young from Frederick County um, defending her bills that would prohibit um, minors from using tanning beds. Uh, We'll also see the pesticide debate reach the Senate. And yeah, uh, Delegate Cox is also um, having a bill hearing in House Judiciary um, for his No Fear in Education Act, um, which has uh, built off school safety acts about having resource officers and safe entrances, but it would also make um, office school resource officers that are in the school liable if they don't respond to a... Um, an active attack, essentially, that's going on. We did see that happen at Stoneman um, down in Florida. The individual that was a officer who had a gun on his person didn't um, af- confront the assailant. Now, the question is whether we really should be expecting our officers to do that um, and whether they should be le- legally uh, are they liable, required to do that. Are they liable elsewhere? I'm not positive. You know, that's definitely something I'm going to have to look at. As the we bill is only bill. for schools, right? Um, yes, only for schools. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a, uh, an exciting week ahead. I'm actually really anxious for the uh, tanning bed bill. I never sat in a tanning bed. Uh, my sister did. I always told her not to, but no one listens to the younger brother. So, um, you know. Uh, yeah, I've never been in one either. My father had uh, melanoma when I was two years old. He has the scar still on his back, and I think that tempered my desire to ever go into a tanning bed for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Skin cancer will make you stay away from, from the tanning beds. It makes me stay away from the sun. Anyway, uh, Samantha, thanks so much for the time. I, I know it's going to be a busy day, so I, I appreciate you coming on, even if it was a little bit earlier in the morning than we're used to. Um have a great week next week, and we'll, we'll talk next week. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks.